Well, an elderly Floridian called 911 and she was hysterical. She said, I think my car's been broken into. I can't find anything. I, I, they took the steering wheel. They took the radio. They even took the accelerator. She's crying to the dispatcher. So he says, listen, stay calm. An officer's on the way. So a few minutes later, the officer radios back to the dispatch. He said, uh, disregard previous call. Patient's in the back seat by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's how it goes here in Florida. <laughs> so... <laughs> we're in the I've done that, no I'm not kidding um, we're in the fascinating book of Esther and even though we know it's God's word you would think it reads like a suspense novel it just reads like that um, it's full of suspense, it's full of secret plots um, all kinds of ironic twists and it's just one of those books you can't put down when I read a chapter I just need to go forward to find out what the, what the rest of the book was going to tell me so um, it's, uh, it was, I just had to sneak into it. So it's that kind of a book. And today we're studying, in my opinion, the three best chapters of the book, um, five, six, and seven. Um, they're dramatic. And uh, don't panic. We're not going to have time to go through every verse in three chapters. Okay, so you will get out before noon. No. Um, it's really the principles of the book that really count. Um, but just for a moment, I'd like to step back into the end of chapter four a bit to kind of set the stage for... Five, and uh, this is where good old Uncle Mordecai receives a copy of the edict to destroy all the Jews in the kingdom, men, women, and children. Now, he calls for Esther's personal unit uh, to give a copy of the edict to her so she could see what, what was going on. And he pleaded with her to please use her influence as queen to do something. Um, appeal to the king, but she was afraid, and who would it be? Um, Persian law forbid anyone, even the queen, to go before the king unless they were summoned. And she hadn't been summoned for 30 days now. So she was a little bit panicky to even hear this coming from Mordecai. You just don't barge into the palace like a bull in a china shop, even if you're Queen Esther. So he sends a clear and stern message to her. If you do nothing, don't think you're going to escape unharmed. You're a Jew. They'll eventually find out. And you're going to be dead one way or the other, whether it's because they found out you were Jewish or because you disobeyed the, the king. So one way or another, you're going. Um, and if deliverance doesn't come from you, it's going to come from someone else. So figure it out, he's telling her. Now, although he may not have been a, a spiritual practicing Jew, they didn't, they didn't have a, a temple there at that time, but I think he was alluding, Mordecai was alluding to God's ability to intervene in spite of man's disobedience in order to preserve his chosen people, his, the Jewish people. So Esther, she gathers up the courage to take her chances and go uninvited to plead for her people, and thus the infamous passage, uh, if I perish, I perish. So it is here that she calls for her people to take a, to do a three-day fast, and she and her women will do the same. Again, Esther, her uncle, and most of the Jews who didn't return to Jerusalem, but remained in Persia, they really weren't spiritual Jews. They had no temple, but they had to have had um, a knowledge of God and of the law. They had the scrolls. And they had history, they knew the history of their people. So Esther calls them to this three-day fast. And I thought it was interesting about this because Dr. John MacArthur um, speaks to this uh, about the three-day fast. And even though it's not in the um, original text, does not say anything about this, he feels that surely this fast must have been accompanied by some kind of prayer or what would be the sense of it. They weren't dieting. 
Um, he explains that one can pray without fasting, but why would one fast without praying? What would be the sense of that? Um, he maintain, maintains this um, stance from the fact that fasting by the Jews throughout scriptures were always accompanied by prayer. And he cites uh, scriptures such as uh, Deuteronomy 9, Judges 20, Ezra 8, 2 Samuel 12, and Daniel 9, just to name a few. Uh, in any case, we could say that this was the Jews' 911 call. <laughs> they needed help. So, um, but why did she wait three days? I thought, why, why fast three days? Why not just get it over with? That's what I would do. Because um, <laughs> I'm a big scaredy cat, but anyway. Um, but it's hard to say. Maybe she needed time to prepare herself for the king. That was really important back then. Um, or maybe she needed time for these banquets to get ready because she had already planned that. So we open in chapter five with verse one. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's pa palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. She, her knees had to be knocking. She probably was a wreck. This took a great deal of courage, but she was obedient to Mordecai, mm -hmm. and she got the strength from God, I'm sure. And she could have been minutes from having her head chopped off, but it's hard for us to see that in this culture that we live in, in our Western culture, we don't live under this kind of regime. So. so, but we know that God was silently working behind the scenes in response to all those who were fasting and praying. Because this was all part of the sovereign plan. In verses 2 and 3, the king took one look at her and held his scepter out with favor, granting her whatever she wanted. Mission accomplished. She has the king in her corner, but it was God who put him there. God can work in the hearts of anyone even a pagan king. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is like streams of water in the hands of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. God has done this throughout biblical history. This wasn't the first time Joseph received favor from the Pharaoh. Moses and his people were set free from a change of heart by the Pharaoh. King David was shown favor many, many times by people who wouldn't ordinarily have done that. Uh, we too can probably remember times when those in authority over us have caused us fear or intimidation but God is in control of their unbelieving hearts, whether they're aware of it or not. Now, Esther had only one simple request in verse 4. This was to invite the king and his right-hand man, Prince Haman, to, to a banquet that she had prepared later on that day. And it was granted. Verses 5 to 8. So they ate and drank, but Esther held her peace and said nothing about the edict. Why didn't she say anything? Instead, she beats around the bush and invites them to a second banquet the next day. Why was she waiting? Well, my favorite pastor and expositor, Steve Kreloff, explains that, explains that it was customary in the Persian culture to work your way up and warm people up to a very important um, request that you had. It's not like in our culture where we just barge in and spit it out. Um, they were a little more demure about it. So asking several times and having someone be entertained several times really was not unusual. Um, so. This is where we think we got that from. So in verses 9 through 12, we see Haman just full of himself. He, he can't stand it. Believe me, this man had no problems with self-esteem. He didn't know, need to go to a self-esteem group or anything like that. What an ego this man had. So proud that he was invited to dine alone with the king and queen, not once, but twice. He couldn't contain himself. So he runs home, tells all his friends and family the news. But his bubble is burst when he sees good old Mordecai the Jew sitting in the gate. And Uncle Mort isn't in the mood to bow, as the custom is. <laughs> so, 
Doesn't this just burn Haman up? It just burns him up. It ruined his happy day. He just despised him. He's a powerful prince. One of, other than the, the king, he was the next one in, in line as far as power went. And he lets one Jewish man drive him up a wall. So this is what pride does. So, um, but Haman's hatred wasn't for, for nothing. He was extremely anti-Semitic. And keep in mind, Haman was an Agai. An Agagite, I never can say that word. Anyway, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 tells us this. And Mordecai was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And in 1 Samuel 15, we see that it was a, the Jewish prophet uh, Samuel who hacked Haman's ancestor, King Agag, to death. But even at that, even if that's where it came from, the real truth is that the real enemy is Satan. All of opposition to the Jews and even believers today is all backed by Satan. That's where the root of it is. He's the true enemy of God's chosen people. He's tried throughout all of history to wipe them out, even to prevent the birth of Messiah, which was an obvious failure. Uh, and he continues to work even in our generation. We experienced the Holocaust of World War II. Um, and he will continue to work in vain, in vain, to thwart all of God's promises concerning the Millennial Kingdom, God's promises to Israel, all those covenants. But he'll never succeed because God's plans cannot be thwarted. Haman manages to pull himself together now, and he gains his composure so he can brag to his family in verses 11 through 14. And Haman says, even Esther the queen let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. What arrogance. I mean, he just can't stand it. But Haman is not alone when it comes to pride. Pride affects every one of us. And we all have it in one degree or another. It's the one sin that I believe God hates the most. Because it's the sin that brought about the fall of Satan and a third of the angels. It's the sin that caused the fall of Adam and Eve and plunged us all into sin and death, all of mankind. Pride is not only thinking you're better than someone else, but it actually raises you above the level of God to the point where you, you, you could just live independently fine without God. In other words, no one's going to rule over me. You've heard children say, you're not the boss of me. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of attitude that pride takes. The great C.S. Lewis once said, pride will be your greatest enemy all of your life. Spurgeon writes, pride is the firstborn son of hell. And Ironside says, pride is the barrier to all spiritual progress. Amen and well said by these three men. So Haman can't enjoy his great moment, can't enjoy his day in the sun because one Jew in the gate is eating him alive. So to prove what a great decision maker he is, he follows the advice of his wife and friends and builds a gallows 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai on, and he's going to go in the morning and ask the king for Mordecai's life. Well, you know, with friends like this, you don't need enemies. Um, we really need to be careful who we take advice from, even if it's our friends and families. Um, they don't always know what's best for you. But Haman was a fool. And if we take time to do the math and convert cubits to feet, we're going to see that the gallows that were 50 cubits high is actually 70 feet, 75 feet high, which is about seven stories. So he wasn't fooling around here. He wanted everyone to see this. This would cause the people to fear him like they didn't already. And the way in which they executed was not really by hanging them. It was by impaling them first on a post and then hanging them. So um, pretty gruesome for sure. Something we're not used to seeing in this country yet. So we have said that throughout history, we've already said this, that Satan has been the back man attempting always to exterminate the Jewish people. And it started back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. There'll always be an intense hatred between Satan and God's people, the Jews. 
and it is channeled by two people, like all the Hamans and all the Hitlers of time. But Haman's pride is short-lived, for God's people will never be blotted out. God says it in Isaiah 45, 17, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, and they shall not be put to shame or confounded for all of eternity. So any effort to annihilate the Jews is gonna be in the end futile, and God has said it, and history actually gives the evidence. So in chapter six, we move on. Um, in verse one, we see the king having a little royal insomnia. And here he's, we're going to see God working silently behind the scenes again. Have you ever had a sleepless night? I know I've waken up in the middle of the night and I'm like, why am I awake? And it's the only time where it's actually quiet. Um, and this is sometimes often God's way of trying to get our attention when he can't during the day. And it's often a good time to pray and meditate. Psalm 119, 148 says, my eyes anticipate the night watches. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on thy word. So God is able to work in our hearts in, at night, but God is also able to work in the dead of night, even in the heart of a pagan king. Verse one, during the night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, this seems to me like an odd request. It's like asking somebody to bring you the telephone book and read it to you. you know, I mean, why would he want that? I, mean, that would, I guess that would put you to sleep. Anyway, but the Persians were infamous in keeping records. They kept every event recorded, and who got rewarded, that's how the Persians were. But here we see God at work again. God's sovereignty is everywhere throughout this book. Because God is sovereign, there's no coincidences, there's no accidents, there's no fate, chance, or luck. It was God who kept the king awake. And it was God who directed the advisor to choose the exact place in the book to turn to. And in the providence of God, where do you think he opens the book? To an incident that took place five years earlier regarding Mordecai the Jew. What a coincidence. Verses two through four. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bithna and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, and that they had sought to lay hands on King Harris. So Mordecai overheard an assassination plot five years before. Imagine that. Of everyone in the palace, it just happened to be Mordecai that heard this. So, no, it just didn't happen to happen. It was providentially ordained to happen. Verse 3, and the king said, well, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the man said, nothing's been done for him. Now, it was customary for the kings to reward their people immediately because the last thing you want is hard feelings with anybody hanging out in the court. You wanted them to be loyal to you and this was the way to keep them loyal, but for some reason, we know what that reason was, Mordecai was overlooked and he didn't get rewarded at that time. To the human mind, this looks like a mistake, but it wasn't. God was causing this to be overlooked at that time so it could be used at this very moment. And what about those times that we've been overlooked, maybe for a promotion that we were supposed to have, or maybe we did something someone else got credit for, and we wondered, well, how could God not see this? Um, or how about that lab test that got overlooked and, and, oh, it got found later on by a doctor that could handle it much more than, better than the doctor that had it prior to him. It, we don't see those hands working. We don't see God's hands working, but we have to trust that he is working so that we don't get insulted, that we don't get bitter, resentful, and angry because things didn't go the way that they're supposed to go, uh, that we think that they're supposed to go. God is in control. He will take care of it. And if you'll notice, Mordecai didn't get upset about it. Um, he showed humility. He never said a word. He just kept on doing what he was supposed to be doing. 
James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So whatever we do, we're doing for the Lord. And to receive reward from him is far better than receiving it from a man anyway. So verse 4. So the king says, who's in the court? Oh, what another coincidence. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows. So in verse 5, the king orders him to come in. You know, when you look at all these coincidences, you have to laugh, because I was laughing. Uh, Queen Vashti just happens to be deposed. Queen Esther just happens to be chosen. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot. The plot just happens to be recorded, but not rewarded. Haman just happens to get promoted. Haman just happens to build a gallows. The king just happens to have insomnia. The chapter read in the book of records just happens to go back five years to Mordecai. Haman just happens to be in the court when the king wants advice. So... I might as well have walked into a kitchen to bake a cake and have all the ingredients fall out in just the right amounts. I mean, it's just silly to not see God's hand, but it could not be more obvious that God is moving the chess pieces around and he's the sovereign one, he's the one in control. And sometimes when we see our lives coming unraveled, we have to try and remember this. I know it's really hard when you're seeing everything come apart, but it is God who's in control. Psalm 103:19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all, over all. So back to Haman in the outer court. Now verses six through nine, the king plans to honor, honor Mordecai for his heroic deed and calls for Haman. The king needed advice and Haman was the king's advisor. So this is the beginning of God showing how he has a sense of humor. Um, the king asks Haman what should be done to honor a man that the king desires. Now the king never names the man. Now, Haman doesn't know what the king is thinking, and the king doesn't know what Haman's thinking. It's right out of a Shakespearean play. Um, only God could do this. Haman's quick on his feet. Of course, he's got the answer, because he's been probably rehearsing it for quite a many years. And his pride, he thinks it's gotta be me. Um, and we can all laugh at this, but we have to be honest, haven't we not had this thought ourselves at times? Uh, one time or another, we have to agree if we're honest that we have. But the scriptures say in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And Haman is about to start falling. Now, Haman blurts out his wish list uh, in verses seven through nine. Let's honor the man, he's got good ideas for the king, with the king's royal robes and place him on one of the king's horses on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let's parade him through the streets and announce the honor that the king has given him. Incidentally, um, I found this in my reading, which I thought was interesting. The crown spoken of is not a crown placed on the head of a man, which I thought it was. It's actually Persian custom to place the crown on the horse's head. So, um, so he's got it all figured out. He knows what he's going to do. So here it comes in verses 10 through 11. Great, the king says, go do all those things you just said to Mordecai the Jew. Wow, what a smack in the face to Haman. His worst enemy gets the goods and he gets humiliated in front of everyone. So God has a sense of humor and Haman has a stroke. That's like, okay. So in verses 12 through 14, Haman, who earlier in our lesson was skipping home like a little schoolgirl, all puffed up about going to a banquet, is now covering his head because he has egg on his face. So, he had to do what the king ordered. I mean, otherwise he'd be dead. So, but it was killing him, it had to be killing him. He covers his head, runs home with his tail between his legs, and we don't see him bragging to his family this time. Instead, he's recounting the whole mortifying detail uh, event of what had just happened with his loving family. But I gotta say, this time his wife and friends gave better advice than they did before. Because at the end of verse 13, his wife and friends say, Listen, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, 
is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. These are very wise, powerful words coming from a, a pagan a wife and pagan people. Um, they must have known throughout history that uh, it was futile to fight the Jewish man, as after all, the king had shown such favor to him. And I think Persians were very superstitious people. Um, they might have seen this as an omen of things to come. Who knows? But they said it, and it was wise. Chapter 7, the scene opens in verses 1 through uh, 2 of chapter 7, opens up with King Xerxes, Queen Esther, and Mr. Personality, Haman, sitting at the second banquet Esther had prepared. Now, I'm sure Haman was quiet as a mouse with his stomach in knots after the fiasco before with Mordecai. So the king is now dying to know what Esther's request is. He's been waiting, so he asks. And Esther spits it out in verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answers and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request, for we've been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. That was a mouthful. She just revealed her true identity as a Jew, and now she's begging for the life of her people who are about to be exterminated by an edict. This edict was conjured up by someone, and it involved money and bribery. Remember back in chapter 3, Haman asked the king for an edict to kill a certain people. He never identified them as Jews. He then lied to the king, saying they needed to go because they don't obey the king's laws. That was a lie. Um, so Haman offered the king 10,000 talents of silver to offset the loss of income generated by the loss of so many people. By the way, 10,000 talents of silver in today's economy is well over 96 million. So, so we know that Haman must have been a wealthy man and he knew what he was doing because money talks. He knew what he was doing just like Hitler did and like all the other people did. In verse 5, the king asks, who is he? Where is he? Who would presume to do such a thing? Now the king's mad. The king did not know the edict was intended for the Jews and that Esther was one of them. In Haman's case, this is tantamount to the vice president trying to knock off the first lady. That's what it's tantamount to. So now the feathers are about to hit the fan. Verse 6, Esther blows the case wide open. And I'm sure she pointed when she said, a foe, an enemy, is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the queen. Wow, what a difference a day makes. This, this is the progression. This is the progression of Haman's fall. First is pride, then humiliation, and last terror. And this is the, Haman of, uh, this is the actual progression of all falls, not just Haman's. The principle of the fall is that no matter who you are in this world, if you don't come to an end to yourself and admit you're a sinner and have offended a holy God, you will have passed through this life and you will find yourself humiliated before the judgment uh, seat of the Lord. And sadly, there is a terror that will come when you face darkness without the Lord. He says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And now Haman, he's only falling into the hands of a human king. He hasn't fallen into the hands of the living God yet. But his day is about to come. Verse 7 through 9, the king's so angry he can't even speak. So he goes into the garden to cool off and think things over. Meanwhile, Haman's now panicking. He's reduced to begging the queen for his life. And in those days, rather than eating at a table, they reclined on couches. So Esther's laying there. Of course, he tumbles on top of her. And he's begging for his life. And in a panic, he just fell. Well, in just one of those coincidences, the king just happened to walk in. And seeing this, he thought, oh, Haman's assaulting the queen. Great, bad enough he wants her dead. Now he's attempting a sexual assault right in my presence. Well, now his mind was made up, and when the king gave orders, things happened quickly. The king's men covered his head, and a sure sign things were going downhill quickly for Haman. Okay, so Haman was a dead man. And now Harbona, who was one of the king's eunuchs, who probably had no love lost for Haman, 
um, remembered Mordecai's deed to the king too. And he also remembered that there was gallows built. So it must have gone around town. What timing on Harbona's part. Mm -hmm. Verse nine, he reveals, this, we, it, verse nine actually reveals the sense of irony and poetic justice here. Harbona says to the king, behold, indeed, the gallows are standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on you, on your behalf, king. Imagine that Haman builds the gallows, which, which is bad enough, but he builds them in his own yard. I mean, what a fool. So anyway, now tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor and not just in the Bible, but I read this story and I had to laugh, so I have to share it with you. It reminds me of a story about a name, man named Charlie Justice. Now laugh at the last name Justice, okay? And that was his name. And back in 1900, while performing cleaning duties around the electric chair, he came up with a bright idea to improve the efficiency by securing the person better. So the person eventually redesigned the chair using Charlie's idea and put it into service. Well, Mr. Justice was eventually paroled and released, went on his way, but ironically, he was convicted of murder 11 years later and died in the same electric chair that he had improved. So, this is the modern version of Haman's story, Poetic Justice. And so we end these chapters with verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided, just like Charlie Justice. God determines the time, the ways, and the means of death. Some are just more ironic than others. So what are the principles we can take from this? Because we're not living in the Persian Empire in 480 BC, we're not kings and queens, and we don't live under a monarchy. So what does any of this have to do with us? Well, I could think of four quick principles. Number one, God is to be obeyed when even it looks dangerous for us to do so, and leave the consequences to him. Esther obeyed Mordecai, but in reality she was obeying God because she was standing up for her chosen people and she was willing to risk her life. And courage is part of that. First Samuel 15 says to obey is better than sacrifice and Jesus said if you love me you'll keep my commandments. So not heeding the advice of others or, or using our fallen understanding, we need to go forward and just obey even when it doesn't look like the outcome's gonna be good. Number two, God is sovereign over all the events of our life, even the hearts of those who are unbelieving and those who are in authority. He can work it either way. Exodus 8, he hardened the heart of an already hard pharaoh, and on the other hand, in Exodus 12, softened the hearts of the Egyptians to give over the gold as the Exodus began. So even though he can use, uh, use his sovereignty to work through the hearts of authorities, we are still commanded to pray for our, those that are over us in authority. Number three, God works through the agency of man by divine providence. There's no such thing as luck, coincidence, chance, or random acts. God places people and events according to his own good, according to his purpose and time. And Acts 17 says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their times, boundaries of their habitations, appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. So it's no accident that you live where you live or work where you work. And when we complain about our situation, we're actually saying that God doesn't know what he's doing. So if God has providentially placed you somewhere, make good use of it for his glory. Paul did when he was in the Roman prison. He was not in prison by accident. He was not in prison by his own disobedience. He was there because God placed him there and favor was shown to him. And he reached the Praetorian God and um, the house of Caesar with the gospel. And the fourth principle and last principle is that God hates pride. Proverbs six, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven, yes, that are an abomination. Proud eyes, a proud look. That's number one on the list. And this is indeed the dangerous of all sin because this, everything you see around you is due to pride. The fallen nature, the world, everything. Even in Isaiah 14, Satan said, I will, not God will, I will, I will ascend. So people do the same thing when they live their lives thinking they're more important than other people and independent from God. 
they can do a better job at running their lives. But for the believer, we need to keep a godly perspective on who we really are. We're wicked sinners, only saved by the grace of, of God through the blood of Christ. But for the unbeliever, I say that you may be feeling pretty good about yourself right now, and you may have a great family life, great job, and you owe all this to your own ingenuity, but God's not impressed by the estimation of yourself. He wants you to know that he is the Holy One who created you, and you were born a sinner. So if you can continue without acknowledging this fact, this will be the only life you'll succeed in, because after death, there is no more opportunity. It's appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. Repent and come to Christ for forgiveness, and you will receive eternal life. Don't be like Haman. Haman lost the only life he had, and he's now facing the judgment of God. Please don't make this your only life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word that we can derive from it special principles to, to uh, apply into our own lives, Lord. And we just thank you for this great and wonderful book that it was preserved through the Jewish people for us to enjoy and to use. In Jesus' name, amen.